0: Well, this morning we continue our series in church, and so far what we've been trying to do in this series is understand uh, what church is, what's the essence of church, what is is it that defines church, and what does that then mean for us as we meet together. And so what we've uh, seen over uh, these weeks, and that's what we've been building up the picture of, is, is that the church is God's gathering. Uh, to meet, oh, sorry. The church is, God's gather, is the gathering of God's people to meet the Lord Jesus in his word, um, in the power of his spirit and in fellowship with one another. Now we've been building that picture up over the weeks and so it is important to try and, if you can in your heads, keep that big picture of what's, what we've been saying over the weeks. Uh, maybe you could download the talks if you've uh, missed them, they're all up on the website now, sorry it took a while for some of them to get there. Uh, but we've been trying to build up this picture um, and trying to think about that. And so we had a great uh, question time last uh, Sunday night, um, and hopefully we'll have another one next week. So as we uh, think about what church is, be thinking of your questions that you have so that we can, you can ask the questions and so that we can inform our thinking uh, and try and inform uh, our practice uh, by God's word. Well, we've seen a number of implications over the weeks of uh, what church is and what that means for us. Um, But this morning, I want to be starting to think a little bit more clearly about what do we actually do when we come together as God's uh, people? And what what would happen in the gathering, in the meetings? so as we gather on Sunday night, uh, what should happen there? What should be uh, the core thing that goes on when we meet together? And we're going to hopefully set the framework this morning um, and think about some things. And then over the next two weeks, we'll Uh, be continuing to think about uh, what does it mean for us as we gather together. Uh, So this will be the the beginning of one of three, if you like. And so we're not going to say everything today, uh, but hopefully we'll set a framework which will help us to understand as we get there. Well, the starting place where I want to start today is uh, Durham Cathedral. I don't know if anybody, has anybody been to Durham Cathedral. Uh, Joes, yeah, yeah, Durham Cathedral. It's a few people that have been to, been there. Now we went uh, a few months ago as we uh, drove back from Scotland. We stopped off in, in Durham, went to church, and then had a, a walk around um, the, the town and went th- went into the cathedral. It's a really quite impressive building, and in some ways for me it was also quite a disturbing experience. Now you walk into this Christian church building. It's a huge cavernous space inside. Um, then there's uh, rows of chairs down the middle. Then there's a massive space between this, the kind of the chairs and another bit, which kind of narrows. And you can see away in the distance through this uh, narrow opening the Lords uh, the table, the communion table, right at the end. <clears throat> and in some ways, what it made me think of is they're trying to almost replic- uh, replicate uh, the temple, the Old Testament temple. And it made me think. We, we do that quite a lot in our thinking about church. So you see it there in the design of the building. round the back of the, the church, they also had the nine altars, I think it was called. Uh, the, the Christian altars. Do we have altars? And it made me think about words that we use. And so sometimes you hear churches described as a tabernacles, or it's, it's God's building, you know, the house of God. Now, the place where God dwells then. Or sometimes in the church there would be a special place within the church that some people might call the sanctuary. As if it's a, a more holy kind of place within the building. And then when you think about uh, the, the things in the church, so you have the communion table It's called the altar. Uh, the, is the communion table, should it be called an altar? Now, the ministers are often called priests. The priests sometimes wear priestly clothes, special clothes. Now maybe not so much now, but people would often ask you, where do you worship? Meaning, where do you go to church? And so people would say, well, I, I worship at St. Swithin's, or I go to, I worship at Bland Street Evangelical Church. You see, but all those kind of things, talking about the place where we meet, The things in the church, the people who uh, go, all those kind of ways of speaking are actually picking up an Old Testament understanding of worship. And I want us to see this morning that applying those to what happens in church is misguided and actually can can also cause quite a dangerous outcome for us. As we misunderstand what we should be doing when we come to church. And so in order to press this home and to explain this, I want to be looking uh, this morning at Hebrews chapters 9 and 10. Uh, these are verses uh, which are in a section which starts in chapter 8, but we're going to focus particularly on Hebrews uh, chapter 9 and 10. So if you want to uh, turn uh, there now. And the big emphasis uh, through chapters 8 to 10 of Hebrews is, is that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than what was there in the Old Testament now I was going to uh, read these chapters but they're quite long um, and so we're, we're not going to read them so I would encourage you uh, later to uh, maybe take a bit of time read through uh, what's, what's being said here um, and see whether uh, what I've said about them is actually true to what's being said here well Hebrews chapter 9 and we're on to Old Testament worship Sorry there's not much space on your handout this morning. Hopefully you'll have uh, space if you're taking notes to uh, fit everything in. Well, in the first ten verses of chapter 9, the writer speaks of two things. Uh, Firstly, the tabernacle, and then also sacrifices. And So look at verses 1 to 5, where uh, the writer discusses the tabernacle. (coughs) The verse 2 says, a tabernacle was set up. Uh, the tabernacle was originally a tent in the desert. Uh, so the people, of, uh, as they came out of Egypt, they were instructed to make a tabernacle, which they then uh, packed up and set up um, in different times and different places as they uh, wandered around in the desert. And eventually, when they came into the land of Canaan, it became uh, the temple as Solomon built it. <coughs> Now the main thing that the writer here draws our attention to is that within the tabernacle there were two rooms. So you see in, in verse 2, in the first room, you could say that's the big uh, rectangle on your handout if you like. In the first room, you know, there was the first room and it was called the holy place. And within, the roo- within that room though, there was then another room which was curtained off from the rest. You see in verse, th- verse 3. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place. So you have the holy place and then within that there's another room called the most holy place. And again this place contained various different objects. And the point was that as you moved through the rooms you were getting closer to the presence of God. So symbolically God dwelt in that inner room, the most holy place. No holier and holier because of God's presence. Now the system of worship required this place. So they couldn't worship God without having this place. And then it had regulations for who could go to different places. <clears throat> so verse six it says that the the priests entered regularly into the outer room, into the holy place. And then when it came to the most holy place, the, the place where God dwelt most uh, tangibly, if you like, only one person could enter there and only once a year. So look at verse 7. But, they only, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year. So you see, so only one man could reach right into the presence of God and only once a year And when you think about it, you think, where was the general population at this time? You see, they couldn't even come into the holy place. They were outside on the other side, so they couldn't come into God's presence. And the reason for this was the people's sin. So you see, there's this tabernacle set up, and so therefore there was also then a system of sacrifices so that people could have some kind of access to God. You see, the sacrifices were to cover sins. So look at verse 7 again. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. You see, he couldn't enter that holy place unless he had covered his sins and also the sins of the people by killing an animal. He had to sacrifice to cover his sins and the people's. And the writer then goes on in verse 8 to explain the significance of it all. He says the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. You see what these things were to show? The tabernacle and the sacrifices? That there is not yet a way into God's presence. And their consciences were not cleansed from sin yet. So there's a double problem. They couldn't access God... And they couldn't be made clean. You see, the temple brought people close to God, but not really. The temple dealt with sin, but not really. You see, the tabernacle, the temple, was God's idea, but it wasn't his ultimate aim. It showed people that they still had sin that needed dealing with. It showed them that they still needed to get into God's presence, but couldn't get there yet. You see, the whole system was a shadow of what was to come. That's what 10.1 says. It says, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. You see, worship in the temple wasn't the main thing. And so if we try to emulate that, then we're misguided and missing the point of what we're meant to be doing. And what we need to see is that that Jesus is the game changer. You need to see the reformation that Jesus makes. You see, because Jesus changes everything. Now the reason he changes everything is because he is the reality to, what the, to which the shadows pointed. You know, so we've seen that the priests went into the earthly temple, which proclaimed no entry. And they took with them earthly sacrifices, neither of which were effective. Well the writer to the Hebrews argued, and now he still argues here, that Jesus is the greatest high priest and he enters into the tabernacle which is heaven itself. And offers a perfect sacrifice. So far, see his perfect access. And Jesus enters into the most holy place. However the most holy place that he enters is not a tent on earth. But into heaven itself. He enters right into the presence of God. And so see it verses 11 and 12 of chapter 9. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here. He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not part of this creation. And then across in verse 24. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself. Now to appear for us in God's presence. Can you see how much better he was than everything that happened in the Old Testament? Jesus goes into the most holy place, heaven itself, right into the presence of God. He had perfect access. But also see that he makes the perfect sacrifice. Perfect access, perfect sacrifice. And the sacrifice for sin which he offers is his own blood. So look at verses um, 11 to 14 again of chapter 9. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say not part of this creation. And then he says, he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained a you see what happens? So while in the Old Testament sacrifices didn't really make the people clean inside the blood of Jesus really does make us clean. The blood of Jesus cleanses our consciences. His sacrifice is the perfect sacrifice. Now, it's a sacrifice that doesn't need to be re-offered time and again going on and on and on year after year after year. Because it's sufficient to cleanse us. Once for all. See Jesus' action completely changes everything. It's wonderfully explained by the writer in verse 11 of chapter 10. Where you see what what it means. Day after day. Every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again he offers the same sacrifices. Which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for his sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now I love that image of uh, the priests. If they were going to have a priest, they'd have to stand there day after day after day doing the same thing again and again and again. But Jesus does it once for all and sits down. And the act of sitting down says it's done. And it makes us holy. And because of this, we've no need for that old system to bring us into God. The old system is destroyed. You see the result of the reformation that Jesus makes? He offers a sacrifice which really can make us clean. He has now opened the way for us to come into the presence of God. I don't know if you remember, do you remember in, um, in Mark's Gospel, as Jesus, as you reach the climax of the Gospel and Jesus is on the cross being crucified uh, for our sins. The, you, we've got our vision fixed on the, on the Mount of Crucifixion. and If you imagine the camera lens is there. And then all of a sudden, as Jesus dies, the camera lens switches from the, from the mountain there and comes across here and we look right at the temple and we get focused on the curtain to that inner place that the holy of holies and you see the curtain torn in two you see as jesus died that curtain is torn in two and symbolically now people can come into the presence of god he's done away with the barrier between us and god and then before the writer goes on to explain the significance for how we act, he, he summarises these things in verses 19 to 21 of chapter 10. Look at those now. You see what he says? Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, yes, we have confidence to enter into the presence of God, as here, by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, you see the salvation that we have is wonderful. And we have confidence to enter into the most holy place, right into the presence of God. It's as we saw last week in Hebrews 12, we now gather in the presence of God, into the city of God. And the reason that we can gather there is because of the perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus that is opened for us. And so see the implications for us. The writer draws out three for us. And we see them from verse 22. So see the the, the implication of the old system being done away with. Verse 22 you see the first one. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. You see what it says? Draw near to God. We can draw near to God because of the Lord Jesus. Have faith in him. And so just see what that means. We don't now need to come to particular places in order to come into the presence of God. Draw near to God now by faith. Now, so we don't come to church as if it is the house of God. As if coming to a particular place means that we come into God's presence. See, the church is not a building that draws you into God's presence. And so I've said before, we need to start seeing the church building as nothing other than a rain shelter. Or think of it this way, if, church, if the church building burnt down this afternoon, and we had to come down here, every, all the, the whole church came down here and gathered here on Sunday night, would that mean that it wasn't a church, because we didn't come to the particular place? No. We gather now to God by faith, not in particular places. Now, the buildings we have at Fullwood are a great blessing. But they're not essential. And so we come to God by faith. And so also see then, if we come to God by faith, we don't need special people to bring us to God. We have the Lord Jesus who has opened the way. We don't need a priest to bring us into the presence of God. And it's wrong to think that particular people can draw us into the presence of God. Now there's no priests with this kind of role now. The ministers at church are not priests. And also see that we don't need to offer then special sacrifices to be drawn into the presence of God. Now Jesus has offered once for all the one perfect sacrifice for sins and that draws us into God's presence by faith. Now we don't offer literal sacrifices as they did in the Old Testament. But sometimes I think we can think of almost our singing in that kind of way. As if we sing in a particular way and that is our sacrifice and that will draw us into the presence of God. We come to the presence of God through the Lord Jesus. There's nothing that we can offer which will make our relationship with him better or more acceptable to him. So let's draw near to God by faith in the Lord Jesus. Let us have the confidence and realise that because of the Lord Jesus, we come right into the presence of God. Well, the second implication is there in verse 23. <clears throat> Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. You know, what we've said this morning is something which brings us hope. Uh, Do you know, we gather here now, but we have the hope that in in the future we will gather where we will see God face to face. We will be in his presence, uh, fully and bodily. You see, we have access now, but it's also a future thing as well. It's something which we will know to the full extent, which we will realise fully in the future. And so, keep holding on to our hope. And do that by realizing that God is faithful. So that when He speaks, He doesn't lie. He tells us the truth. God has been faithful in the past and He will be faithful in the future. And so keep trusting God. And you see, our, our hope is tied to our faith. We have faith in what God has done. And so that's where our hope comes from as well. The God who promised is faithful. It's in the word which he has spoken to us about his son. That's how we get into the presence of God. And so see, in those two things, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, the faith was very physical. You know, they came to a particular place where there was particular people doing particular things. Whereas the faith that we don't have that kind of religion now, we have a religion which is focused on faith. And so we don't need to think that we need to do particular things. As if actions or sacrifices are going to bring us closer to God. Well, the way I think in which we keep this faith and this hope is what it says in verses 24, uh, 24 and 25. And this is a third implication for us, which is the one which we will explore over the next two weeks as well. So knowing everything that Jesus has done, we have access into the presence of God he then says and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds how can we spur each other on as we wait for the day the day when Christ will return how can we spur each other on towards keeping going you see it's hard isn't it sometimes to keep the faith it's not something we can see and so we have to be encouraged to keep trusting in the Lord Jesus keep holding unswervingly to the hope that we have and so we spur each other on to do that And that's how we're going to keep going until the day when Christ returns, as we spur each other on. Do you know, I wonder how, do you think, as you come to Lighthouse or as you come in the evening church, do you think to yourself, I wonder how I can help Nathan tonight? Or do you think, I wonder how I could help Fiona? How could I spur her on in her faith? How could I spur her on to keep beholding that hope? Do you think that when you come to church? Because that's what we're being called to do. Spur each other on. Do you come into church and think, wonder where I'll sit tonight. Is there anybody that I could spur on? Somebody sitting on their own who looks like they could do with a word after the service or during the service of his opportunity. Or do you sit just with the people you like, your friends? Which is not necessarily a wrong thing to do. But do you even consider it? Well, the way in which you're going to be able to spur people on is given in verse 25. First, negatively and then positively. How are you going to spur people on to love and good deeds? Well, negatively, by not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. It seems quite obvious, doesn't it, really? Do not give up meeting together. You see, church attendance must have been an issue for these Hebrews as it is for us today. And maybe the preacher here is still berating those who are actually at church for not coming when they're actually here. But you see what he's saying? Church attendance matters. If you're going to spur people on, if what we have said is true, that that we've got a faith and a hope which we need to kind of hold on to, then you need to gather together to be able to spur other people on. The writer says, Do not give up meeting together. Do you need to hear that admonition? Or are you going to be someone who decides that what God says is not really that important? That I don't really, I, I can not gather together, it doesn't really matter. Are you going to think that Sunday was really my day? and that gathering together with God's people at 6.30 on a Sunday evening is not that important if I've got other things which come in and I think it's also quite interesting to see the reason the writer, the writer gives for not, meeting, not giving up meeting together why are we not to give up meeting together now you imagine him to say something along the lines of don't give up meeting together because you need to be encouraged to keep going in your faith and in your hope. But can you see, that's not the emphasis the writer here gives, is it? It's not focused on the encouragement you will get, but on the encouragement which you can give to others, to the way in which you can spur other people on. You see, you come to church, you don't give a meeting together because you have got something to offer in spurring other people on. Indeed, your very presence there encourages others. Now you may think you've got nothing to offer and next week we will see how wrong that is. But I wonder whether you've had the experience of a church where lots of people are away and as you get there it doesn't seem quite right, it doesn't seem like it normally does. It seems a poorer experience. Well, that's the reality which the writer says here. Don't give up meeting together because we are cheating each other out of things. When we don't gather together, we diminish the experience of everyone else. Well, positively, as we spur one one another on by encouraging each other. See verse 25 again. Let us not give up meeting together as some of them are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. You see, you're going to spur each other on uh, to love and good deed by encouraging one another. And what does it mean to encourage one another as the way to spur each other on? Well, it means that we'll speak of the gospel to each other. That's That's what it is at the heart. Speaking about the Lord Jesus telling each other to keep remembering what he's done for us and let's keep following him. Let's keep going. It reminds us to remember our salvation. And it means that we'll encourage each other and we'll engage with each other deeply to keep each other going to heaven. You see, when we come to church, this is the big purpose, I think, that we come together for. We're going to be spurring each other on. You see, we don't come to church to worship God as if that is going to draw us nearer to God. Everything that needs to be done has been done by the Lord Jesus. Rather, we are focused on keeping each other going, by speaking of the gospel, by delighting in the gospel, by proclaiming the gospel to each other. There were a great question earlier on, that surely when we come together we don't... Um, we, we glorify God don't we we praise God and I think that's right we do do that when we come together but what brings God most glory well it's speaking about his son it's speaking about all that he has done through his son and as we gather together can you see that that is what is going to encourage us to keep going as well The very thing which will encourage us to keep going is the very thing which will bring great glory to God. And so as we sing and praise God together, that is going to encourage us to keep going because we will see the salvation we have. And as we hear those words and are spurred on to keep doing that, we think, yes, yes. I'm going to follow the Lord Jesus with all my heart. I'm going to try to put this into practice this week. I can see how amazing and how wonderful it is. And as we delight in that and do that each week, is that not going to bring glory to God? Do you know what John Piper says that God is most glorified as we are most satisfied in Him? How do we become satisfied in God? Well, by hearing the gospel by embracing the gospel, by thinking, yes, I'm going to follow him in that way. You see, it's essential that we are spurring each other on. And, you know, so we do that each week as we gather together and we appoint certain people in the church who will be ones who are encouraging us. And so that's why we we have church leaders who will preach each week and almost sets the framework for our encouragement and our spurring on towards love and good deeds. It's why we sing praise to the glory of God for our encouragement. It's why we should be speaking after the service with each other about what we've heard. To encourage each other and spur each other on. It's why we should be engaged in gathering other people into this great kingdom that God has been building. This great gathering because we see how wonderful it is. let us consider how we may spur each other on towards love and good deeds. There's much more that I could say on that, but our time is gone really for this bit. Uh, But do please come back over the next couple of weeks because we're going to think more about what it means to be spurring each other on, how to be encouraging each other and some of the different things that we do and how it does that. And so do uh, have a look at the questions in the back sheet. Be asked, thinking of questions as well hopefully I've stirred some things, some thoughts up in your minds. Uh, write them down if, you, if they're not answered in your groups. Uh, we'll have a question time next Sunday night again where we can uh, wrestle some more with these kind of things. But let me pray as we come to discuss in our groups. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. That he has done what we couldn't do. That he has opened up a way into your presence by his blood. And we thank you, Father, so much that we can have a relationship with you. We can be in your presence because of what the Lord Jesus has done. And so, Father, would you please be helping us to draw near to you by faith in the Lord Jesus? Would you be helping us to hold unswervingly to the hope which you have given us? And Father, would you help us now to be considering how we may spur each other on. And would you be helping us to do that more and more in the coming weeks and months and years. That we, Father, would be keeping going, we'd be growing to love and delight in you more as we wait for that day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.